You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Friday, March 1st. I'm Morgan from Drake University, and here's our first story. Sale of donated land yields $9.8 million. Proceeds to fund Reavers Athletic Complex Renovation Scholarship. And this story is written by Scott Stewart of the Nonpareil. Iowa Western Community College sold land adjacent to its Council Bluffs main campus to support the renovation of an athletic facility and to create an endowed scholarship. The sale in December of about 105 acres of land between College Road and Interstate 80, just east of the college, brought in about $9.8 million, according to a news release. John Wiebe, an Omaha developer and philanthropist, gave Iowa Western the land in August 2007 with no strings attached. It was appraised for $18 million by Heartland Properties, although the college acknowledged at the time that the land is only really worth what someone is willing to pay. The 85-year-old said at the time that he thought the college could use it for a football stadium and decided to donate the property after hearing that former Nebraska Cornhusker coach and congressman Tom Osborne had agreed to advise the college as it starts a football program, the Nonpareil reported in 2007. The college contemplated building a 5,000-seat, $10 million Weeby Stadium, but it went on to play football games at, at Lewis Central High School's facility, and the football stadium wasn't pursued. Instead, the Iowa Western Board of Trustees voted earlier this month to move forward with a $4.5 million renovation of its soccer field. The complex will be converted to turf to both to host both soccer and football practices, as well as serve as the home field for the Reavers men's and women's soccer teams. And that and that team name is spelled R-E-I-V-E-R-S. Football will continue to play home games at LC's Titan Stadium, which received an updated new turf and scoreboard last fall. The renovated facility will be named the John and Harriet Wiebe Football and Soccer Complex. Substantial completion is expected by September 1st. Iowa Western President Dan Kinney said the project will be fully paid for with proceeds from the land sale, including new lights and a scoreboard. The land sale represented the largest gift ever to the foundation. Mr. Wiebe and his family had a vision to support the growing Iowa Western campus, and that vision becomes reality with the land sale, Kinney said in a release. Future generations of Iowa Western students will benefit greatly from this gift. Despite lacking their own dedicated stadium, the Reaver football program is at the top of its game. Last fall, it, it clinched its third consecutive National Junior College Athletic Association National Championship with a 61-14 route of East Mississippi. The remaining funds from the land sale will establish the endowment for the John and Harriet Wiebe Scholarship. The scholarship will support Iowa Western students beginning this fall and will continue in perpetuity. Both John and Harriet Wiebe died before the land was sold, but the foundation worked with family members to determine how to use the proceeds, despite its lack of obligation. Kinney said he hopes a family representative can attend the athletics com- complex, the athletic complex's dedication.
The Iowa Western Foundation was grateful for the generous donation of land from John and Harriet Wiebe, said Donna Berry, president of the college's foundation. We are excited to utilize the proceeds from its sale in a manner that supports the college and honors the donors. And I am going to describe the one picture that is associated with this story. Or there's two pictures, actually. The first one has the caption, About 105 acres east of campus was donated to Iowa Western Community College in August 2007 to build a football stadium. While the stadium never happened, the college did sell the land in December 2023 to fund an athletic complex renovation and create an endowed scholarship. And this image is just a big uh, field of uh, what looks to be golden grass right now. And then the second image um, shows another, or probably the same field, but with a fence on it. The next story is titled, House Passes Bill to Arm School Staff After Shooting, written by Tom Barton of the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Iowa House Republicans passed a bill after lengthy debate and vocal opposition by Democrats that would create a new permitting process for school districts to arm trained staff. House File 2586 passed on a party-line vote 61 to 34 at about 11 p.m. Wednesday following nearly two hours of debate. The bill now heads to the Iowa Senate for consideration. Iowa Code currently allows approved school staff to carry a gun on campus should they choose. Two districts in northwest Iowa put policies in place but rescinded them last year to avoid being dropped by their insurance carrier for liability coverage. This year's legislation looks to address insurers' concerns by putting in place a new permitting process that allows employees at Iowa's public and private schools and colleges to carry a firearm on school grounds during school hours. It would also provide qualified immunity and indemnify school districts from criminal or civil liability for all Quote, damages incurred pursuant to the application of reasonable force, end quote. There's no mention of insurance in the bill. House Republican lawmakers said their intent is to bring insurers back to the table and said they're confident that the permitting, training, and indemnity provisions in the bill will alleviate insurers' concerns. School districts would not be required to arm staff. Rather, the bill provides requirements for those districts that choose to do so. This bill sets a very high standard because we are talking about the safety of our children, said Representative Phil Thompson, a Republican from Boone, lead sponsor of the bill and chair of the House Public Safety Committee. The bar must be high. We recognize that this responsibility must be taken very seriously, Thompson said. The strict training regimen outlined in this bill ensures that the employees who acquire this permit are equipped with the skills and proficiency to act appropriately in the event of an emergency. In order to receive a professional permit to carry weapons, employees would have to pass an annual background check and complete a firearm safety course in addition to one-time legal training on issues like qualified immunity, as well as annual communication and emergency medical trainings approved by the Iowa Department of Public Safety, plus quarterly live firearms training. The bill also would require school districts with at least 8,000 students, among them Council Bluffs, Cedar Rapids, Davenport, Iowa City, and Sioux City, to have at least one armed private security guard or school resource officer in each district high school. Districts could opt out of the requirement for having an armed security officer at a high school by a vote of the school board. 
Schools with fewer than 8,000 students would be encouraged but not required to employ school resource officers or security officers at high schools. The state would establish a school security personnel grant program fund that would match up to $50,000 for employing security personnel. Identities of school staff issued a weapons permit would be confidential and not subject to disclosure under Iowa's open record laws. I don't have a choice of knowing I don't have a choice of knowing of how many guns are around my second grader, House Minority Leader Jennifer Converst, a Democrat from Windsor Heights, said. I don't have a choice of knowing whether Mrs. Kennedy or Mrs. Smith is the teacher I want if I don't want my kid's teacher to have a gun. Staff in the district will be allowed to carry concealed weapons during school hours. It would be up to districts to decide which firearms staff could carry and whether the district would provide those or allow use of personal firearms, Thompson said. The move comes in the wake of a shooting last month at Perry High School that killed 11-year-old Amir Joliff, a 6th grader, and Principal Dan Marburger. Six other people were injured in the shooting. The 17-year-old student who opened fire died of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot. Supporters of the bill said the fastest way to respond to a school shooting is to have an armed personnel on site, trained and available to respond at a moment's notice. Parents, law enforcement, and school superintendents from rural communities, as well as gun rights activists, have said while school resource officers play an important role in Iowa schools, it is unrealistic to expect a single police officer is always going to be at the right place at the right time should tragedy strike. They noted the Perry Community School District employs a full-time school resource officer and said rural school districts do not have the same access to nearby or fully staffed police or sheriff's departments. People with bad intentions are going to do bad th things. People with good intentions are there to stop them. And House Majority Leader Matt Winschittle, and that last name is spelled W-I-N-D-S-C-H-I-T-L, who is a Republican from Missouri Valley. Look at the data. Look at the statistics. Seconds count. Seconds save lives. House Democrats oppose arming teachers, citing risks to staff and students. Rather, they said lawmakers should instead pursue an evidence-based intervention plan that addresses school gun violence, and they advocated for providing resources for mental health services. Most professional education organizations have rejected the call to arm teachers, uh, as has the National Association of, Association of School Resource Officers and the American Bar Association. Opponents said an armed teacher is much more likely to shoot a student bystander or be shot by responding law enforcement than to be an effective solution to an active shooter in a school. If I'm carrying a gun and there's a threat at the door, the thing that stands between me and a threat is 26 kids that I would take a bullet for, said Representative Molly Buck, a teacher and a Democrat from Ankeny. I could never live with myself if I put a bullet in one of them. Buck noted she's been trained that if there's an armed intruder to safely evacuate students or shelter in place and barricade themselves if there's no way out. If I choose to be armed, what then is my role? Is my role to stay with my students and keep them safe? Or does my role then become to go after the intruder, Buck said. Representative Beth Wessel-Croshell, and that last name is spelled um, W-E-S-S-E-L-K-R-O-E-S-C-H-E-L-L, -E -S -S -E -L -L, 
who is a Democrat from Ames, said insurance companies are hesitant to cover schools due to the due to the lack of data on school on staff safety. There's no data on what would happen if we arm staff in schools, she said. There are too many unknowns and the risks are high. The risks are unsecured guns left in a restroom, locker room, unlocked desk drawer, and a young, curious student finding it and and experimenting. Rep. J.D. Schulten, a Democrat from Sioux City, said there have been more than 100 publicly reported incidents of mishandled guns at schools in the last five years, including a teacher accidentally firing a gun during a safety demonstration. Wessel Crochell emphasized the need for more adults in schools rather than armed teachers to address safety concerns and prevent violence, including providing funding for schools to hire specialists to help students with homelessness, poverty, bullying, and more. I believe that every student in Iowa deserves to be safe in school, and I believe that every parent deserves to know that their child is safe in school, Wessel Crochell said. I want Iowa to make our students safe. Arming teachers does not get us there. Instead, Democrats urged Republican lawmakers to prioritize violence prevention, intervention, and sensible gun safety laws. The Republican solution to school safety is more guns, said Rep. Lindsey James, a Democrat from Dubuque. Iowans are crying out to us for common sense gun safety laws. Iowans want to see universal background checks and investment in safety infrastructure in our school, the encouragement of safe storage awareness. They want to see legislation on extreme risk protection orders. They want to see an investment in mental health. These are the common sense gun solutions, gun safety solutions that Iowans want to see. Winshittle said House Republicans are moving forward separate bills to address mental health and bolster school safety infrastructure. This is a broad-spectrum approach. While it it may not be all-encompassed in this one House file, we're working on multiple different aspects to provide the safety and protection and quality of education and the environment for our children to grow and prosper, he said. We can all work together on this, and we can provide the safety that our children deserve. And there is one image associated with this story. Um... It is of two policemen outside of a school, and the caption says, Police respond to Perry High School on January 4th. All right, moving on. The next story is titled, IDF Troops Fire on Crowd. More than 100 dead after Israelis gunned down people grabbing food. And this is written by Wafa Sharafa Kareem Shahib and Melanie Lidman from the Associated Press. Israeli troops fired on a crowd of Palestinians racing to pull food off an aid convoy in Gaza City on Thursday, witnesses said. More than 100 people were killed in the chaos, bringing the death toll since the start of the Israel-Hamas war to more than 30,000, according to health officials. Israel claimed many of the dead were trampled in a chaotic stampede for the food aid, and that its troops only fired when they felt endangered by the crowd. Arab countries quickly condemned the attack, and U.S. President Joe Biden expressed concern that it would add to the difficulty of negotiating a ceasefire in the nearly five-month conflict. The Gaza City area was among the first targets of Israel's air, sea, and ground offensive launched in response to militant group Hamas's October 7th attack into Israel. While many Palestinians fled the invasion in the north of the enclave, 
A few hundred thousand are believed to remain in the largely devastated and isolated region. Several deliveries of aid reached the area this week, officials said. Aid groups say it has become nearly impossible to deliver supplies in most of Gaza because of the difficulty of coordinating with the Israeli military, ongoing hostilities, and the breakdown of public order with crowds of desperate people overwhelming aid convoys. The UN said a quarter of Gaza's 2.3 million Palestinians face starvation. Around 80% have fled their homes. Military officials said the pre-dawn convoy of 30 trucks driving to northern Gaza were met with huge crowds of people trying to grab the aid they were carrying. Kamel Abu Nahel, who was being treated for a gunshot wound at Shifa Hospital, said he and others went to the distribution point in the middle of the night because they heard there would be a delivery of food. We've been eating animal feed for two months, he said. He said Israeli troops opened fire on the crowd as people pulled boxes of flowers and canned goods off the truck, causing the Palestinians to scatter, with some hiding under cars. After the shooting stopped, people went back to the trucks and the soldiers opened fire again. He was shot in the leg and fell over, and then a truck ran over his leg as it sped off, he said. At least 112 people were killed. Health Ministry spokesman Ashraf al-Kidra said the Hamas-run agency described it as a massacre. Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Jordan accused Israel of targeting civilians in the incident. All right, the next story is titled Putin Evokes Noops in Address. The Russian president responds to idea of West joining the fray. And this is written by Vladimir Ishachenkov from the Associated Press. Russian President Vladimir Putin vowed Thursday to fulfill Moscow's goals in Ukraine and sternly warned the West against deeper involvement in the fighting, saying that such a move is fraught with the risk of a global nuclear conflict. Putin's blunt warning came in the state of came in a state of the nation address ahead of next month's election he's all but certain to win under lining his readiness to to raise the stakes in the tug of war with the west to protect the russian gains in ukraine in an apparent in an apparent reference to french president emmanuel macron's statement earlier this week that the future deployment of western ground troops to ukraine could not be ruled out putin warned that it would lead to tragic consequences for the countries who decide to do that Putin noted that while accusing Russia of plans to attack NATO allies in Europe, Western allies were selecting targets for striking our territory and talking about the possibility of sending a NATO contingent to Ukraine. In a two-hour speech before an audience of lawmakers and top officials, Putin cast Western leaders as reckless and irresponsible and declared that the West should keep in mind that we also have the weapons that can strike targets on their territory and what they are suggesting and scaring the world with all that raises the real threat of a nuclear conflict that will mean the destruction of our civilization. Meanwhile, Kiev officials said Russian forces are pushing hard against more Ukrainian towns and villages in eastern and, so- and southeastern Ukraine. Despite Russia's apparent offensive momentum on the ground, Ukraine said it shot down 13 Russian warplanes in February, including three on Thursday, as the Kremlin's forces pushed forward. With the full-scale war now entering its third year, Russian forces have been bludgeoned 
bludgeoning some Ukrainian defense positions into submission, deploying overwhelming amounts of artillery and troop numbers in an effort to punch through defensive lines at, at targeted points. The Russian army is trying to seize the towns and villages of Tanoki, Orlikva, Orlivka, Semenvika, Berdichi, and Krasnohorvika in the eastern Donetsk region. Ukraine's army chief, Colonel Colonel Gen Oleksandr Sariski, said on social media, Biden and Trump arrive at New Mexico border. Presumed presidential foes conduct dueling events 300 miles apart. And this is written by the, the Associated Press. President Joe Biden and likely Republican challenger Donald Trump arrived at Thursday in Texas, some 300 miles apart for dueling trips to the U.S.-Mexico border in a sign of how central immigration has become to the 2024 election and how each man wants to use it to his advantage. Biden, who wants to spotlight how Republicans tanked a bipartisan border security deal on Trump's orders, went to Rio Grande, Valley City of Brownsville. For years, this was the busiest corridor for illegal crossings, but they dropped sharply in recent months. Trump, for his part, wants to keep up on his dialed-up tone after harnessing rhetoric once used by Adolf Hitler to argue migrants are poisoning the blood of America. He journeyed to Eagle Pass, about 325 miles northwest of Brownsville, in a, the corridor that's currently seeing the largest number of crossings. According to an AP NORC poll in January, the share of voters concerned about immigration rose to 35% from 27% last year. 55% of Republicans say the government needs to focus on immigration in 2024, while 22% of Democrats listed immigration as a priority. The next article is titled, Congress Votes to Avert Government Shutdown. Short-term funding extension is fourth in recent months. This is written by the Associated Press. Congress passed another short-term spending measure Thursday that would keep some federal agencies operating through March 8th and others through March 22nd, avoiding a partial government shutdown that would have started Saturday. The short-term extension is fourth in recent months, and many lawmakers expect it to be the last for the current fiscal year. House Speaker Mike Johnson, a Republican from Louisiana, said negotiators completed six of the annual funding bills that fund six of the annual spending bills that fund federal agencies and had almost final agreement on the others. The House voted Thursday to approve the extension, 320 to 99, easily clearing the two-thirds majority needed for passage. The Senate then approved the bill during an evening vote, 77 to 13, to send it to President Joe Biden. Next week, Congress is expected to take up a package of six spending bills and get them to the president before March 8th. Then lawmakers would work to fund the rest of the government by the new March 22 deadline. At the end of the process, Congress is expected to approve more than $1.6 trillion in spending for the fiscal year that began October 1st. The next story is Cornyn says he will run for GOP Senate leader. Texas Senator John Cor Cornyn, and that last name is spelled C-O-R-N-Y-N, informed colleagues yesterday that he intends to run for Senate Republican leader, the first senator to announce a campaign after Senator Mitch McConnell, a Republican from Kentucky, said he will step down from the post. 
Cornyn, who served as McConnell's number two in leadership before he was term limited out of the job five years ago, cited his experience in that role in a statement to fellow senators announcing his run. He's also trying to distinguish himself from McConnell, saying, I believe the Senate is broken. That is not news to anyone. There has long been speculation that Cornyn, South Dakota Senator John Thune, and Wyoming Senator John Barrasso would vie to replace McConnell if he were to step down. McConnell's announcement Wednesday that he won't run again for Republican leader after the November elections jump-started the campaign earlier than expected. The next story is based out of Stinnett, Texas. The headline is Texas Wildfire Grows to Largest in State History. A dusting of snow-covered scorched prairie, dead cattle, and burned homes Thursday in the Texas Panhandle, giving firefighters brief relief in their desperate efforts to corral a blaze that grew into the largest in state history. The Smokehouse Creek fire grew to nearly 1,700 square miles. It merged merged with another fire and is just 3% contained, according to Texas A&M's Forest Service. It's the largest of several major fires burning in the rural section of the state, and it crossed into Oklahoma. Two women were the only confirmed deaths so far. With flames still menacing a wide area, authorities had yet to conduct a thorough search for victims or tally the number of structures damaged or destroyed. Republican Governor Greg Abbott issued a disaster declaration for 60 counties. And then there are a little series of brief stories that I'll read. Um, Capital Riot. Ronald Colton McGabby, who was Tennessee Sheriff's deputy when he assaulted police officers protecting the U.S. Capitol from a mob of Donald Trump supporters on January 6, 2021, was sentenced Thursday to nearly six years in prison. Embryos. Amid public pressure... Alabama lawmakers moved closer to approving protections Thursday for fertility clinics that shut down after the state court ruled frozen embryos are legally equivalent to children. Classified documents. Federal prosecutors requested a July 8th trial Thursday for former President Donald Trump on charges he illegally retained and concealed classified documents. Defense lawyers say no trial should be conducted this year, but proposed August 12th as an alternative possibility. Ballot. Just before midnight Thursday, Donald Trump's attorneys appealed a Cook County judge's decision hours earlier that removed election that ordered election officials to remove the Republican's name from Illinois Illinois's March 19th primary ballot due to his role in the January 6, 2021 Capitol attack. Taxes. The IRS said Thursday it plans to go after 125,000 high-income earners who did not file tax returns going back to 2017, noting hundreds of millions of dollars of unpaid taxes are involved in these cases. Leaks. Jack Texiera, and that last name is spelled T-E-I-X-E-I-R-A, the Massachusetts Air National Guard member accused of leaking classified military documents on social media is expected to plead guilty in his federal court in his federal case according to court filings Thursday. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Friday, March 1st on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Morgan from Drake University. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. 
If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at the phone number 515-243-6833. We have one obituary in today's paper. Richard Lee Hay, age 67, of Oakland, Iowa, passed away on Tuesday, February 27th, 2024, at his home, surrounded by his family. Per Richard's wishes, cremation has taken place and a celebration of life graveside service will be held at the North Lawn Cemetery in Fort Dodge, Iowa, at a later date. In lieu of flowers, memorials are preferred to the family for a later designation between the Webster County Parks and the Pheasants Forever. And Pheasants is spelled P-H-E-A-S-A-N-T-S. Richard is survived by his wife, Jolene Hay of Oakland, daughters Allison Lindsay and Lisa Hay, all of Omaha, Nebraska, grandchildren Boston and London Allen, both of Omaha, brother Robert Hay Jr. of Council Bluffs, and other relatives and friends. Moving on to the sports section. The first story is titled, Hawkeyes star Clark to enter WNBA draft, written by the Associated Press. Iowa star Caitlin Clark, who is on the verge of becoming the all-time NCAA scoring leader in college basketball, announced Thursday she will leave the Hawkeyes after this season and enter the WNBA draft. While this season is far from over and we have a lot more goals to achieve, it will be my last one in Iowa, Clark wrote on social media. Clark has become the focal point of women's basketball with her flashy play and three-point shot, often from the on-court logo. Many players would be benched for shooting from so far out, but Clark has the green light from her coach and has delivered while also finding her teammates and hitting the board. The guard, with one more year of eligibility, became the all-time leading women's scorer in major college basketball by scoring 33 points to pass Lynette Woodard and post her 17th career triple-double in a 108-60 victory over Minnesota on, on Wednesday. In her, announcement, in her announcement, she thanked her teammates, coaches, and the thousands of fans who have packed arenas across the country to watch her and the 6th-ranked Hawkeyes. Those fans were chanting, one more year, one more year, while Clark was being interviewed on the court Wednesday night when she also broke the NCAA's single-season record by sinking eight three-pointers for a total of 156. She has 3,650 career points. Woodard had six... Sorry, Woodard had 3,649 points, for Kansas from 1977 to 81, before the NCAA sanctioned the sport. Earlier this month, Clark broke Kelsey Plum's NCAA scoring record, which was 3,529 points. Next up is the overall NCAA scoring record of Pete Maravich, who is just 17 points ahead of her. Clark, Clark is expected to be the top pick in the draft on April 15th. The Indiana Fever, who ha- who have the first pick, indicated on social media shortly after Clark's announcement that, that they intended to select her. 
we're just simply reminding you that there are only 46 days until the 2024 WNBA draft, the team posted after dropping a link to its game tickets and a conspicuous number one. Clark's final regular season home game at Iowa is likely to bring one of the priciest tickets in women's college basketball history. The cheapest ticket listed Thursday on TickPick.com for the Sunday game against number two Ohio State was 481. South Carolina, Ohio State, Stanford, and UCLA would be the number one seeds in the NCAA tournament if it began now. The NCAA's Women's Basketball Selection Committee on Thursday did its second reveal of the teams in line for the top 16 seeds. A lot has changed in the last two weeks since the initial unveiling, outside of South Carolina and Ohio State's dominance, of the original top 16 seeds, 11 lost at least, at least one game. That's a testament to where college basketball is right now. It's difficult night in and night out. NCAA Women's Basketball Selection Committee Chair Lisa Peterson told the Associated Press in a, in a phone interview Thursday, that hasn't always been the case. Peterson said South Carolina and Ohio State have had really strong seasons, and there was a lot of discussion of the final two number one seeds. Stanford was a little more secure than the others because of their body of work, she said. They lost to Arizona, but Cameron Brink was out. The last number one had a lot of conversations considering that Virginia Tech has been playing so great right now. UCLA had such a tough schedule, and they have Lauren Betts back. Just outside the top four teams was Iowa, which was ranked number six in the AP poll. The Hawkeyes, last year's national runner, uh, runners-up, were once again projected as a number two seed. The top 16 seeds will host first and second round games, with the regional rounds being played at two neutral sites for the second straight year. Portland, Oregon will host half of the Sweet 16, and Albany, New York will host the other eight teams. And the picture associated with this story is um, of Caitlin Clark in a Iowa uniform running on the basketball field. Um, and the caption says, Iowa guard Caitlin Clark points after an Iowa basket during the first half of, wa- of Wednesday's game against Minnesota in Minneapolis. The next story is in the NBA. Warriors continue road success, knock off Knicks. By the Associated Press. Stephen, Stephen, Stephen Curry had 31 points and 11 rebounds, bouncing back from a scoreless first half in his last game with a double-double from, by, a, by the midpoint of this one, and the Golden State Warriors beat the New York Knicks 110-99 on Thursday night. Jonathan Kuminga added 25 points for the Warriors, who extended their road winning streak to seven games, their longest winning their longest since winning 11 in a row in the 2018-2019 season. Jonathan Kaminga added 25 points for the Warriors, who extended their road winning streak to seven games, their longest since winning 11 in a row in the 2018-2019 season. The Warriors raced to a 14-0 lead and never trailed. They opened a series of sizable cushions, but the Knicks kept getting it back to a workable margin. Golden State wouldn't let them come all the way back and won for the 10th time in 12 games overall. The next story is titled, Ramey Kim Share Big Lead, and the name Ramey is spelled R-A-M-E-Y. Both shoot bogey-free 64s in opening round of Cognizant Classic. 
written by the Associated Press. Chad Ramey's first two trips to PGA National as a professional were largely forgettable. He might have a chance to change that this week. Ramey shot a bogey-free round of 7-under-64 on Thursday in the opening round of the Cognizant Classic in the Palm Beaches, tying S.H. Kim for the 18-hole lead. Kim had an eagle and five birdies, including one on the finishing hole to pull into the tie atop the leaderboard. A group of five players, Cameron Young, Ryan Moore, Chesson Hadley, Austin Eckroat, and Andrew Novak, all played in the morning round and finished one stroke back with six under rounds of 65. Also at 65, David Skins, who played in the afternoon and missed an 11-foot birdie putt on his final, final hole that would have given him a share of the lead. Ramey's past appearances in the event, then known as Honda Classic, were quick and unremarkable. He missed the cut at PGA National, by 10 shots in 2022, missed it by just one stroke last year, and failed to shoot around in the 60s either time. But conditions were perfect when he teed off early Thursday. A course known to often have whipping winds had barely a breeze for much of his round. I got a good break this morning with there not being any wind, Ramey said. I fully expect the rest of the week to the wind to blow. I've never been here and it not blow. But it takes, but it take advantage of, of, but to take advantage of the calm conditions is definitely a plus. Added Rory McIlroy, the world's number two ranked player, who shot a four under 67 this in the morning wave. You're not going to get this course much easier. Ramey made a 27-foot birdie putt on the opening hole, starting a stretch where he had five birdies in his opening seven holes, including on the 479-yard par 4 sixth, one of PGA National's tougher holes. From there, he mostly just stayed out of trouble. Only put on, only two of his 11 par putts were from outside four feet. Hit it well, putted well, chipped in once, said Ramey, whose first, whose last first round year lead came last year in the Players' Champion. Very solid through the whole bag. Kim of South Korea holed out from 25 yards on the par 5 third to highlight his round. He holds a first-round lead for the first time in his 45 PGA Tour starts. Hadley was also bogey-free, with six birdies on his card as he finished one shot back of Ramey and Kim. Today in History on March 1, 1974, seven people, including former Nixon White House aides H.R. Haldeman and John D. Ehrlichman, former Attorney General John Mitchell, and a former Assistant Attorney General Robert Mardian, were indicted on charges of conspiring to obstruct justice in connection with the Watergate break-in. These four defendants were convicted on July 1975, though Mardian's conviction was later reversed. On this date in 1815, Napoleon, having escaped exile in Elba, arrived in Cannes, France, and headed for Paris, Paris to begin his Hundred Days Rule. On this date in 1867, Nebraska became the 35th, 37th state as President Andrew Johnson signed a proclamation. On this day in 1893, inventor Nikola Tesla first publicly demonstrated Radio during a meeting of the National Electric Light Association in St. Louis by transmitting electromagnetic energy without wires.
on the state in 1932, Charles A. Lindbergh Jr., the 20-month son of Charles and Ann Lindbergh, was kidnapped from the family home near Hopewell, New Jersey. Remains identified of the child were found in the following May. In 1945, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, back from the Yalta Conference, proclaimed the meeting a success as he addressed a joint session of Congress. On this date, in 1954, Four Puerto Rican nationalists opened fire from the speculators' gallery of the U.S. House of Representatives, wounding five members of Congress. On this date, in 1966, the Soviet space probe Venera 3 impacted the surface of Venus, becoming the first spacecraft to reach another planet. However, Venera was unable to, to transmit any data, its communication system having failed. On this date in 1971, a bomb went off inside a men's room at the U.S. Capitol. The radical group Weather Underground claimed responsibility for the pre-dawn blast. In 2005, Dennis Rader, the church-going family man accused of leading a double life as the BTK serial killer, was charged in Wichita, Kansas with 10, with 10 counts of first-degree murder. Rader later pleaded guilty and received multiple life sentences. On this date in 2010, Jay Leno returned as host of NBC's The Tonight Show. On this day, in 2012, online publisher and conservative blogger Andrew Breitbart died in Los Angeles at age 43. The next story is titled, Challenges to Common Practices, My Pet World, written by Kathy M. Rosenthal, um, who's an author and pet expert. Dear Kathy, I was appalled to read that you support spaying puppies as young as three months old to avoid accidental litters. That is not a good reason. Early, sp or early spaying can hinder a, a female dog's healthy development. Preventing unwanted litters can be achieved by keeping intact female dogs away from intact males. I live with a large dog breeder who has two intact males that have not fathered any unexpected litters. This breeder separates males from females in heat in different parts of the home slash yard. I do likewise. Similarly, I have managed my female dog through her heats using dog diapers. Now that she has completed her second heat, I plan to have her spayed, ensuring her body has benefited from optimal hormone development. Ch my vet agrees. Check out akc.org, written by Terry Castle Rock, Washington. Dear Terry, Pediatric spaying and neutering, a practice that has gained significant traction over the past two decades, involves the surgical sterilization of puppies and kittens at a very young age, typically before they reach sexual maturity. This procedure has come, become commonplace. The development of safe techniques and advancements in anesthesia have made pediatric spaying and neutering a viable option for pet owners. The procedure is also performed by highly trained veterinary surgeons. Contrary to common misperceptions, surgical complications for animals in this age group appear no more frequent than those sterilized at the traditional age of five to seven months. Furthermore, veterinarians trained to do these surgical procedures say they can often perform them more efficiently, resulting in shorter surgery times and reduced recovery periods for the animals. Numerous studies and papers support the safety and efficacy of pediatric spay-neuter, which has been supported by reputable organizations such as the American Veterinary Medical Association and the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. 
The question of whether pediatric spaying and neutering can stunt an animal's growth has been debated among veterinarians and researchers for many years. While there isn't conclusive evidence to definitely state this, the Animal Kennel Club suggests dogs not be fixed until after sexual maturity and states that different breeds and different sized dogs mature at different ages, which means that early spay-neuter spay might not be bad for all dogs. I haven't seen any health or health issues or stunted growth from my 65 to 100 pound dogs who were all neutered at three months old. Research has shown that pediatric spaying and neutering can also reduce the chances of certain types of cancers, especially when female dogs are sprayed before are spayed before their first heat cycle. In addressing your belief that people can get can easily prevent their dogs and cats from being pregnant, I haven't seen evidence of that in my three decades of animal welfare work. Most dogs and cats get pregnant before the pet owner even realizes that their pet is in heat. When male dogs are out of the house and yards for all day, their owners aren't making the connection that their intact dog is looking for a female in heat. Ultimately, when to spay or neuter a dog or cat should be made in consultation with one's veterinarian. If the veterinarian recommends holding off for a particular reason, then that is between the pet owner and the veterinarian. However, many veterinary clinics and animal welfare organizations promote and provide pediatric spay and neuter services as part of their efforts to promote responsible pet ownership and control animal populations. It's a safe and effective solution for reducing unwanted litters and the euthanasia of healthy pets. The weather for today is expected to be mostly sunny, breezy, and mild. The wind will be um, 10 to 20 miles per hour, and um, the high will be 59 degrees. Tonight is expected to be mainly clear um, with a low of 38 degrees. And tomorrow, Saturday, is expected to be sunny, breezy in the, in the evening with a high of 68 and a low of 53. The next story is titled Hits of 1974, 10 Landmark Albums That Are Turning 50 This Year. Let's set the Wayback Machine for to 1974, shall we? It was the year of an oil embargo, a deadly spring outbreak of tornadoes, and the only resignation of a sitting president in the history of the United States. A grim time for the history books, to be sure, but the music circulating that year held considerably more hope. It marked a commercial rebirth for two of the era's most esteemed women artists while promoting the breakthrough of a third. It welcomed musical ambassadors from Sweden and Jamaica, and by year's end, it saw a storied New York band dissolve into a studio collective whose music would help define the decade. Here is a roundup of 10 landmark recordings from a Time of Turbulence albums that, in 2024, are celebrating their 50th anniversary of their release. The first one is ABBA's Waterloo. Long before Mamma Mia hit Broadway, before Dancing Queen commandeered the discos, and before audience took, took a chance on Take a Chance on Me, Sweden's ABBA met their Waterloo. Though not the group's first album, this was the initial recording released under the ABBA name. The title tune broke the group in North America and cemented an already devout fan base throughout Europe. For the rest of the 70s, ABBA would serve as one of the foremost voices of Europop. The global conquest, however, started with this album. Next is Bob Marley and the Wailers' Natty Dread. For Marley, as well as for the entire evolution of reggae music, Natty Dread was a 
Cornerstone Work. It was the Jamaican Stars' first album following the departure of key Whalers members Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler, prompting a return to the band's original moniker of Bob Marley and the Whalers from simply The Whalers. The record boasts two of the band's most enduring songs, No Woman No Cry and, Leave it, and Living Up Yourself, making Natty Dread a social and sexual revolution set to reggae rhythms. Next is Jackson Brown, Late for the Sky. Jackson, Late for the Sky, Jackson Brown's third album, remains the gold standard of songwriting for a sterling 1970s Southern California music community. Its songs were spiritual and solemn, darkly reflective, and fanciful rocking. As a whole, its feel was intentionally visu visual, cinematic almost. Brown recorded it quickly at roughly half the cost of 1973's For Every Man album. All of his biggest commercial successes were still to come, but the novelesque expanse of songs like For a Dancer, Fountain of Sorrow, and The Late Show made Late for the Sky far and away Brown's finest work. Next is Gordon Lightfoot, Sundown. Master Canadian songs writer Lightfoot's extensive career reignited on at least three occasions. The first came in 1971 with If You Read My Mind. Much of the record was indistinguishable from his other sixth albums released between 1970 and 1976. All were sterling mixes of country, folk, and country familiarity. Next, Joni Mitchell, Court and Spark. Few works redefined an artist's career the way the jazz pop leanings of Court and Speak did for folk empress Joni Mitchell. Released three weeks into 1974, the record also registered in a major way with audiences. It helped Mitchell earn her only top 10 single, Help Me, and remains her best-selling album. Nothing was sacrificed by such a commercial breakthrough, though. In fact, Mitchell's guitar phrasing, one-woman vocal chords, and jazz accents only enhanced the increasing, assured introspection of her songs. From Court and Spark forward, Mitchell's songs would be as daring musically as they were lyrically. Next is Linda Rodstand, Heart Like a Wheel. What Court and Spark did for Joni Mitchell at the onset of the year, Heart Like a Wheel did for Linda Ronstad near the close of 1974. The Peter Asher-produced work turns updates of D.D. Warwick Jim, You're No Good, and the Everly Brothers' When Will I Be Loved into Ronstad's first number one and number two hits. Heart Like a Wheel would win three Grammy Awards, shooting Ronstad to international stardom in the process. Next is Rufus Rags to Rufus. This was the album that introduced the world to Chaka Khan. Through Rufus's sophomore recording, Rags to Rufus was the Chicago band's breakthrough. The charge was led by a Stevie Wonder-penned, funk-infused manifesto titled Tell Me Something Good, which would win a Grammy the following year. Rags to Rufus triggered a crossover pop-funk hit parade for the band that would last the rest of the decade, after which Khan soared as a solo artist. Next is Steely Dan, Pretzel Logic. The cracks of pop convention came tumbling down in big chunks on Steely Dan's third album. Though still a work, though still a working, working a quintet, the songwriting team of Donald Fagan and Walter Becker cemented control. The songs were shortier and shorter and sleeker, reflecting a jazzier pop stride. The record earned a major radio hit with 
Ricky Don't Lose That Number, and offered considerable room for auxiliary singer Michael McDonald to roam. The band halted all touring after Pretzel Logic and, and morphed into what was basically a rotating arsenal of studio pros with Fagan and Becker at the helm. Next is Lou Reed, Rock and Roll Animal. When his broadly grim 1973 album Berlin was trashed by critics, it was heralded decades later. Reed formed a new band, took to the stage of New York Academy of Music, and uncorked a set of dark yet celebratory songs drawn mostly from his Velvet Underground days. The resulting performance took a torch to the past, allowing brooders like Sweet Jane, Heroin, and White Light slash White Heat to soar with fresh immediacy. Even the Berlin dirge Lady Day grillows anew. Rock and Roll Animal is an album of revised songs that Reed tears into with, with a reborn spirit forged by and for the times. And the last album that will be turning 50 this year is Tom Waits' The Heart of Sunday Night. On his second album, Tom Waits come, comes across as Frank Sinatra on a bender without blinders. He sounded cool, to be sure. The product of hipster insight, fractured jazz framing, and a, a deceptively astute insight into the human condition. The heart of Sunday night may seem to some, to some as nothing more than a dark, boozy nightclub act. True, a stage character was at work, but the songs fueling that persona were packed with poetic imagery, both grimy and glistening, a masterwork. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Friday, March 1st. The nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 5 p.m. One last time, I'm Morgan from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Sometimes we have too much electricity, but more often, grid operators are carefully managing its production to be sure that we have enough. So, a lot of work has gone into trying to store excess electricity to use later when we need it. The obvious solution, giant batteries, is still too expensive for most applications and has environmental implications. This has led scientists to look for other ways. One method uses surplus power to compress air and pump it into old salt mines. The salt tends to seal cracks in the walls, making the mines airtight. When needed, the compressed air can be released to turn a turbine, or it can be used as the intake air for a natural gas power plant, making the plant more productive. Another way to store excess energy is to pump water uphill into existing reservoirs and then release it through hydroelectric dams when power is needed. This method was pioneered 100 years ago in Italy and Switzerland and is used today around the world and in many U.S. states like Michigan. On the Chilean coast, they're even experimenting with using solar energy to pump seawater up a cliff where it could flow down to make power at night. These solutions don't make economic sense unless the electricity is very cheap and the reservoir was already built for another purpose. But when those two things are present, pumping air and water to store energy plays a valuable role in balancing the grid to meet our ever-changing power demands. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more Earth Date stories at earthdate.org.